and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we'll be talking to Mary Muldowney. As an activist on the left, Mary has been involved in trade unionism, was formerly a member of the Socialist Party and worked with Joe Higgins in the Dáil, and has been involved in many campaigns over the years. Mary is a historian in residence with Dublin City Libraries. She's the author of The Second World War and Irish Women, an oral history, which is originally her PhD thesis. She has a particular interest in oral history and was involved in the founding of the Oral History Network Ireland, edited the Alternative Visions Oral History Group uh, book 100 Years Later, The Legacy of the 1913 Lockout on the Centenary of the Lockout, and is involved in the Labour History Society. We discuss Mary's political background and experience in the trade union movement and working in the Socialist Party, pro-choice campaigns including the Women on Waves ship and the abortion referendums, and her work as a historian and how that is inflected by her activism. If you're enjoying these podcasts, uh, please do subscribe. Um, as ever, we welcome feedback. You can contact us via the Irish Left Archive website at leftarchive.ie. Um, you'll also find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. So thanks again to Mary for joining us, and thank you for listening. Mary, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> um, can we start just by asking you um, if you can tell us a bit about your own political background and how you became involved in politics? I was quite a, a light developer in the sense that I was very involved in, at a distance in a sense in my younger years when I was a teenager as I had explained in my uh, contribution to the Sarah Lundberg school it was attending uh, marches protesting about a lot of things that I thought were wrong with Ireland but I didn't belong to a group and um, I wasn't formally involved in anything and because I got pregnant at a fairly young age I was only 17 that preoccupied me then for a few years having children and doing that so I really it was the 1983 uh, the 8th amendment and the referendum around that mm-hmm. that brought me in more formally um, just volunteered to do stuff locally and uh, I uh, was working in Trinity College at the time and um, around sort of the end of the 80s my first marriage broke up and I think it was a very liberating experience in many ways um I won't go into it but at the same time there were lots of things that I could do that I didn't really get to do when uh, my first husband was around so I um having known absolutely nothing about trade unions, even though one of my best friends was a shop steward, but she never tried to recruit me. Uh, I, as working on a kind of semi-academic basis and an administrative job in Trinity while I was trying to get up to do my PhD, uh, I joined SIP2. And a month after I joined, I was elected as uh, a shop steward for the secretarial staff and the kind of lower grade men, which I was in at the time. And that kind of was my first encounter with really organized political activity because I always count myself incredibly lucky that the section committee the SIP2 committee in Trinity had different strands of lefties who, like Alan McShmone, who an anarchist, uh, Jim Larrakee, 
I'm entirely sure what Jim would have counted himself as, but, you know, probably a Trotskyist would be the closest. Uh, various others who came from different sides of the left, but as they saw this, as Alan used to say, the victim who knew so little about trade unions, she volunteered <laughs> to do all this work. Uh, but I learned so much from them. And through the next few decades, uh, I had the privilege of working with people that I mightn't have even met otherwise. And uh, I got very involved with SIP2 and I was eventually elected um, branch president of what was then the education branch in SIP2. It doesn't exist anymore because they did away with branches. I won't go into that one. <laughs> but so that's kind of where it came from. And the more... I engaged with people and found that there were more organized ways of acting on my own political impulses. I then became involved with anti-partnership groups and, um, of course, meeting people on picket lines and things. Mm -hmm. And I started going to demonstrations and marches. And then I um, met up with people from the Socialist Party, which had just taken what they called the open turn, okay. which wasn't really very open, but you know, enough about that for now. Uh, and I eventually joined the Socialist Party. So I went from being a complete neophyte who had left impulses in the space of about 10-15 years to uh, I've always preferred to be a background person but I learned a lot and learned how to organize and to do things and mm. you know that went from there and thinking over the campaigns that I became involved in over the next decades um, the variety suggests I have a very low boredom threshold, which is probably true, but um, maybe it's, you know, just that there was so much wrong that you had to, you yeah. know, but at the same time, one of the things I've learned is to pace myself. And of course, now I'm far too uh, tired to be able to do too much. But anyway, that's a very long-winded answer. I'm, I'm good at long-winded. <laughs> And which were the campaigns in particular that stick out during that period? You know, say that 15-year period where you'd moved from, as you say, being a, a, a neophyte in a sense, to being at the heart of centre of left political activity. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, I, I, I don't want to be kind of promoting myself in hindsight. Uh, I know, I, I mean, just as I a campaign. I remember of, I can't remember which partnership deal it was, uh, that I was invited by a few people to come on to the committee, the famous back room of the Bachelor Inn. Yeah. And oh, yeah. um, I, you know, that would have been really my first experience of giving public speeches and mm -hmm. writing for more than my own academic writing, you know, that, which was a bit scary at the time. Yeah. And Looking back, I can't believe how shy I was. You know, got past that. Uh, so um, I think it would have been the anti-partnership thread through the 80s and mainly, I suppose, up the mid-90s. Because by the end of the 90s, I think we were going to realise we'd lost that battle. Mm. Actually, we'd lost the war. But, uh, we, you know, in the public sector anyway, um, 
that things were going downhill and the terms of those central deals had become worse and worse. But I'd also been involved in the early uh, 90s with trying, with Alan and Des Derwin, we'd set up the SIP2 fight back, mm. which started off as a newsletter to try and reach out to people who would be like-minded. Now, the thing about it was that, you know, it, it, it seems like years ago when you look at the technological differences, because what we were doing was literally physically making a newsletter that we used Trinity's resources to photocopy <laughs> and post out. <laughs> Didn't spend much money on this. I'm sure Trinity's photocopying bill went right down when both Alan and I left eventually. But um, with Des, we... You know, Des was always very involved in trying to build left unity. Probably Alan and myself a bit more sceptical about the possibilities. Mm. But um, we did try very hard for a period of two or three years by doing things like going along supporting strikes. And there were a lot of things, I mean, particularly the bricklayers disputes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I learned a huge amount there because um, really there weren't, you know, a lot of the people who were involved were, wouldn't have necessarily considered themselves left, mm. but they had a real working class consciousness that said we're being ripped off here as uh, being claimed to be self-employed when they clearly weren't and that went on for a few years and I think I was also not just horrified by the role of the state when the guys were arrested and jailed for a week or 10 days but also by realizing that you know the courts are there to protect the rich which I suppose I knew kind of in theory before, but this was a real practical encounter you know, people I'd been talking with at six o'clock in the morning at a building site somewhere uh, weren't there the next day because they'd been lifted. Um, it was of all of very uh, important. But I mean, one thing looking back, um, my mother spent a fortune on elocution lessons for me as a child. <laughs> so when I came along and I was talking to people on the picket lines, they assumed I was from the SWP because they were more posh than any of the other <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I sure know what they're talking about in particular. <laughs> but um, I kind of got to know Joe Higgins fairly well in those days. And then I went... Um, for a while, I was persuaded to give up the, you know, I took a, a career break from Trinity and I went to work with Joe in the Dole as his assistant. And, you know, at this stage, I'd been, I'm not entirely sure what the word is, but uh, elected to the National Committee of the Socialist Party. But um, I had a real fundamental problem with the democratic centralism which i think is far more central than democratic you know mm. uh, as uh, a good friend at the time who uh, tom cream who appears oh, yeah. in various documents yeah. had said you know you're not really a natural uh 
contact for before I was actually formally joined. Mm. He said, you probably be better with the anarchists. And, you know, ironically, I, I'm not an anarchist. I still have a hard core of bossiness apart from anything else. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the 90s for me were not just an opening up personally, but learning so much about what meant made sense to me politically and what didn't. Mm. And I did realize fairly early that Tom had been absolutely right. I wasn't <laughs> a good fit in the Socialist Party. Um, I th the terrific people there, fantastic work being done. And I still slightly hero worship Joe, but yeah, the problem definitely. really is there are layers that I think came from the old militant days. Now, I wasn't a member of militant. Mm. I wouldn't have joined when they were militant, but I, I believed that they had taken a different turn when I joined. And they were doing such good things around the water charges. Now, I mean, mm. they weren't alone, but, um, you know, there, were, there was lots of stuff. And Joe had gone to the Dáil representing a totally different viewpoint at the time to anybody else who had got yeah. elected. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. probably Jim Kenny was the last person who had made that, you know, formally left arguments in the doll. So it was all very exciting, but also a little bit disillusioning as I realized that actually maybe the problem wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Parties. So it's, yeah, you know, um, it's, I think what happens with small left, left parties in Ireland, I don't know, it's probably, it's true of left groups from what I've read elsewhere as well, that the, building the party becomes the be all and end all. Um, mm. In my naivety, I believe that you join the party to make the world a better place, you know, yeah. or at least Ireland as much as we could. Mm. So I was, I found problems with that. And then there were specifics that arose. Mm. And I decided to leave in the, I think around 2002, 2003, in the middle of right. the anti-bin tax. Yeah. Because I, um, we had a brilliant community group in mm. Stony Batter. Mm. A lot of those of us who were kind of doing the organizing work were from left groups. Now, mm. a mixture of them. And we were doing, you know, we, there were loads of people involved. It was going extremely well. We had lots of ideas about how we could actually win it. Mm. And then we realized that we were being undermined. And it wasn't just the Socialist Party, it was the SWP, who I think it was before their people, before profit mm. days, or as Alan used to call them, people before politics. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, that's a bit sectarian. <laughs> sectarian. <laughs> the thing was that, you know, there were a few groups who clearly mm. were meeting in back rooms somewhere and completely ignoring what had been decided in a more democratic way with the community groups. Mm. So, um, and all around a focus on elections, that right. you couldn't afford to win the thing too soon because the election was next year. Okay. Right, so and it became a campaigning tool yeah. in an electoral context rather than as a tool for progressing the campaign itself, in a sense. Yeah, this was a perfect campaign because it was mostly affecting people with lower incomes. Yeah. So, you know, it, 
covers the class issue. Yeah. Uh, there were people who had never been involved in politics. Maybe some of them might have been involved in the anti-water charges, but they weren't in any formal groups or anything. Mm. There was really good discussion around broader issues coming out of the various meetings. Mm. And then we would find that um, a decision had been made somewhere. <laughs> Never did really know because I wasn't on any central organizing committee. Um, and uh, that's what we could have done to actually win the thing in the end and demonstrate the strength of people power. Uh, wasn't actually being implemented. That must have been quite disheartening. It was. So, you know, I mean, it had been, I suppose something, to some extent, I probably saw it coming a bit in Mm. that I'd had other issues that I would have had difficulties about. Mm. Um, But that was the last straw, so and I, I got you, out. You'd have left around the same time, or in that same period as uh, John Collins left, and then John Connolly after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I, I mean, we, all the reasons would be different. Rather oh, than, yeah. That's true, and yeah. I Famously. That, well, I always felt, you know, it's the old Groucho Marx thing. I don't want to be a member of any organisation but have me as a member. It wasn't, you know, it was... I I actually resigned just before they were expelled. I think both of them were expelled. Mm. It was horrifying. Yeah. So I think if I hadn't already resigned, it was only a matter of weeks, I would have yeah. gone anyway. Because uh, I'm still a fervent admirer of Joan and everything yeah. that she does. Um, Fantastic person. I would have had arguments with Dermot over the years, but, uh, you know, who hasn't? But um, great leftists. Great leftists. Yeah, and I'm very committed. dedicated to yeah. making a better place for yeah, ordinary people, people to live. So, and, uh, you know, Jarmut was one of the founding members uh, of Militants here. That's you know, true. There were just so many reasons. And I had become friendly over the, for even email mail with John Throne, whom. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, Who's another founding member? Yeah, and with whom I had enormous political disagreements. But again, a really terribly genuine person who had made mm. enormous per- uh, personal sacrifices. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So that was, you know, I felt very comfortable with the decision. The only thing I felt uncomfortable about was that Joe Higgins and Claire Daly were in jail at the time. Oh, yeah. And it was my own fault. I sent my resignation to the general secretary of the party and I really should have just done an open letter to the members because I suspect it was misrepresented as, especially since I had worked with Joe in the door for a few years, um, that, you know, my genuine concerns about the directions that were being taken weren't being discussed but as I said yeah. that was my fault ah I mean I, mean, I, I should have approached it differently knowing the structures well know? I mean I left I left DL and I just left I literally just walked out one day I just said to myself I can't stay any longer and without so much as a buy or leave or anything I just oh. went and you know there were people I and people I would still have enormous time and respect for in there but I know exactly what you mean you do you feel it's unfinished business yeah it's did you 
You clearly weren't disillusioned, though, in the sense like that you didn't stop being politically active. You, you didn't stop being or, or were you or did you feel did you feel very disillusioned? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> That's my question. The eternal optimist. <laughs> and I think I just felt, you know, I probably felt I'm just not somebody who should join organizations. Hmm. Um, but I do totally believe in the power of the working class. Whether that's urban or rural or whatever, I mean, mm. I'm a city girl and more comfortable with the urban. But um, I would just, you know, as I said, I'm not an anarchist because, in a sense, I think it needs you to be too <laughs> decent. <laughs> I still every time want to say, look, just do it because I told you to. You know? yeah. um, but it's more that I, th- I think you have to be, you know, this all sounds very naive in a sense, but you have to be open, transparent, honest, all the things that are coming up again because of Gulfgate, <laughs> uh, that if you don't have that, mm. what's the point? Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of my favourite books ever was, 19, uh, not in 1984, though that is another one, but Animal Farm. Mm. I mean, I, I just love George Orwell, I think he was so prescient and he saw what was coming in so many ways. Yeah. But uh, I think if you let the party come first or the organisation or whatever it is, you do have the kind of two legs good, four legs bad developing. Yeah, it can be, yeah, it can be classic, uh, claustrophobic. Totally, yeah. You know, that. I mean, for a few years... I can't believe the amount of work I did. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah. In, uh, I mean, Alan always had this theory that Trotsky's groups um, work you really hard so you don't have time to think about what you're doing and question the directions. Which all parties. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I mean, I kind of, he worked incredibly hard on various things, mm. but he was probably a bit more selective than I was for a time. Mm. I mean, it's it's kind of strange that I owe so much political learning to Alan. Mm. Yes, you know, that apart from the fact that we went from being very close friends to actually getting married and, yeah. you know, it was yeah. an incredibly close relationship and I miss yeah. my best friend as well as my partner. Yeah. But he taught me an awful lot and an awful lot of what he taught me was okay you might have lost this one but regroup and move forward to the next one mm. but don't keep don't fight losing battles yeah. it's a waste of everybody's energy and they just end up feeling burned out yeah and i think that happens yeah so much now on the left yeah Continue- oh. I mean, we were only talking last week to Rona McCord and she was saying how she was burnt out by... Actually, she was a militant or she was associated with militant and uh, yeah. over a three to five year period, I think she said she was very burnt out. Um, so what did you do then? Well, you see, I've been doing... I'm mean, I kind of, you know... Uh, as I said, it looks like I have attention deficit disorder sometimes. There'd been all of the various uh, referendum campaigns around um, the abortion situation Mm. here. And 
while I'd been involved in 1983 in a kind of, you know, foot soldier way, if you like, uh, by the 90s, we had 97 and the sea case. Mm. That was, you know, my first encounter as a member of the Socialist Party. So I kind of became the voice for but was still a small organising group because that particular thing didn't last that long, mm. you know, that it was sorted. 1992, just to go back a bit, you know, with X and the referendum around that, I broke both my ankles. <laughs> so it wasn't like, I, I was sitting at home commenting. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm proud to say that my son and my daughter were very active. <laughs> so uh, I, I could, you know, I probably could have, you know, gone along on my crutches or whatever. It looked totally pathetic, but <laughs> I didn't. Uh, but so that was going on by the 2002 referendum. I actually took time off. Mm just to go in and we were given an office in uh, the teachers club. Mm. Thank you, Tyke. <laughs> um, and myself and a few others, we were working there really full time right. doing press and keep, you know, organizing the distribution of posters and everything. That was such a buzz. Apart from the fact that we won for once, uh, it was the, strength of feeling around the country and people ringing up and saying, you know, that they'd be from somewhere I'd never heard of. Mm. And uh, they wanted to distribute leaflets and we'd be arranging for them to go on a train, you know, the stuff to go on a train somewhere and be picked up. And yeah. I'd also been very involved in the Women on Waves, um, the so-called abortion ship that came in, I think it was that 2000, 2001? Mm. Yes, around then, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd actually written the letter inviting them to come here ah. <laughs> and that was a, a, a dissolution it was a potentially dissolutioning moment because when the ship pulled in we realised that they'd been misleading the organisers in saying they were covered by insurance for women mm. to go out on the ship and have their terminations mm. which they weren't at all the Dutch government had made it clear that the insurance wouldn't cover them mm. so we had in all good faith been calling on women to contact us. You know, it was an incredibly well organized group. And um, when the ship pulled in, we're kind of look, this isn't going to happen. But what we did do, um, I remember a group of us were up on O'Connell Bridge chatting away to a guardie who had been sent to keep an eye on us, handing out leaflets saying, come down for free morning after pills on the boat, which right. was down at John Rogerson's Quay, because at that stage, the apartments weren't built. So it was as far as they could get down on the quays to keep the ship out of the way of everybody else. <laughs> and um, But the guards were clearly thinking, whatever you want. <laughs> we were expecting momentarily to be attacked by youth defence, which never happened. And um, we just handed out all these leaflets. And I kind of felt we've had a turning point at that point. Because right. number one, 
it was totally illegal, <laughs> but there was no comeback. And people were incredibly friendly. There was only the odd loon saying, you know, murderers or whatever. Mm. And both the public response, but also a group not of youth defence, they didn't turn up at all, although we had met, we'd been given self-defence training just in case. <laughs> well, you know, there was good reason to expect attacks at that stage. Um, but a group of older men and women came across from the far side of the Liffey bringing us tea and coffee and buns. Uh, and trying to explain this to us the error of our ways. But that was wow. as close as it came to an encounter with anti-abortion groups. Quite a mild encounter. As a matter of interest, do you think the fact you're getting people from around the country and from other parts of the country foreshadowed then the developments in the 2010s where clearly oh, totally. sentiments was just well, changed? Well, the ship rapidly. went from Dublin down to Cork mm. and... Apart from the crazy intervention of Bishop Buckley on who hired a ship to come in, you know, but it was also responded to fairly peacefully and, you know, there was nothing untoward from either side. Um, now I just felt at that stage there was a turning point that... Uh, what you saw was not necessarily acceptance of the need for abortion, but certainly not the kind of ludicrous knee-jerk stuff there had been earlier, that the Catholic Church at that stage too, it probably undermined itself to such an extent that their pronouncements about something that was never going to have anything to do with celibate priests uh, was really so much hypocrisy when it added to everything else they had been doing. So um, by 2002, it wasn't an enormous majority, but it was telling, it was a Fianna Fáil government, um, you know, I think the PDs were in with them at that yeah. stage, and uh, basically saying, times have changed, guys, you know, back off. So, although they didn't really give up, and Fine Gael, of course, <laughs> in some ways were as well and again, he was unspeakable. But so by the time he came to the 2013 referendum, uh, or at least the law, um, you'd had Savita Halapanavar incident, the, which was incredibly sad, and a few other things like that. So by the time we did have the referendum in 2018, I think there wasn't ever going to be any doubt. I just thought... I mean, I didn't go out on the streets at that stage because I wasn't terribly well at the time. Mm. So I helped by coordinating the canvases coming in. And there were a group of us worked on computers, yeah. uh, which we couldn't have done a few years ago. Even <laughs> so I could see from Dublin, and it's particularly Dublin Central, where I live, mm. <laughs> we were winning hands down. That wasn't going to be a problem. Yeah. But wondering whether the rural vote would balance out. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was yeah. remarkable. There's uh, a photograph somebody took at the celebration that Dublin Central had in um, Liberty Hall, in the, the hall there, uh, which I've been for many occasions. But um, I don't know who took the photograph, but Alan had put it out on Facebook and he captioned it, after 35 years, Mary Muldowney looks totally astonished to have finally won. And actually, I did. I just looked stunned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of trepidation, wasn't there, coming into that? Particularly, I think, on the part of people who had been around for, as you say, for eighty-three onwards. Yeah, you know, it, it was a fantastic feeling, and mm. the lovely thing about it was um, the numbers of really young people who got involved. Mm. Because previous campaigns, it was kind of, you know, you'd be seeing people you hadn't seen for a few years. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I just came back for this one. But yeah. then for that, you know, there were just people that I was old enough probably to be their granny, you know, that, uh, and they were out there. And then, of course, they get politicised as a result yeah. of something like that. And there'd been the equality referendum. Yeah. Know couple of years before so um there's just no way to predict what it is that will really connect with people's imagination because mm. i know you know i've gone on many marches and demonstrations especially as the repeal the eighth campaign was getting a big momentum mm talking to a lot of people in the crowds and they're kind of, you know, <laughs> felt, they're saying, you're not a bit old to be here. <laughs> and of course, Alan had been around so long as well. Uh, <laughs> but um, you'd be saying to them how long we'd been active. Mm. And clearly, they just thought we'd been doing nothing for years because uh, it was only now developing momentum. But they didn't have much class or economic consciousness. Mm. And... Yeah. It's not the time to start trying to lecture people, but I, you know, just like myself, um, I suppose I can't really do it formally in my job, but I've been incredibly lucky with friends. It's not just Alan and Des and others, but in recent years with the Stony Batter and Smithfield People's History Project, which was mm. started out as a lefty working class history project mm. to not to preach to people, but to let them learn from the experiences of the past what can be achieved against enormous odds. Yeah. And that's what we've been working on. Now, we haven't been very active this year for obvious reasons. Um, but, I mean, last year, for instance, we brought out a publication and this plaque up on the side of the cobblestone to Bob Doyle, who was mm. came from Smithfield and went off and fought in the Spanish the Civil Spanish War. Brigade, yeah. And that's something that, I mean, when I was in college as an undergraduate, we did, we covered the Spanish Civil War, <laughs> but not in such a way that it really brought up the whole class dimension because mm. enough, most of the people who went from Ireland to fight on the Republican side were working class people mm. who all they had to give was their bodies. Yeah. Whereas General O'Duffy's <laughs> lunatic army, you know, the, the, the fascists essentially um were coming from you know the, the most of the research shows who were coming from kind of well-heeled middle class or well-heeled farmer backgrounds yeah so uh they were trying to preserve their own status as well as of course the catholic church's position and all of that and and a very strong class aspect to it as you say like i mean the, yeah uh, totally with elements of class consciousness and um 
on and and not just working class consciousness, a middle class consciousness as well. I think sometimes well, people is, forget that yeah, exists. You know, I mean, there is. Uh, you're inclined to when you talk about class consciousness, people assume you're only talking about the mm. working class, but the ultimate in class consciousness is the elites who are protecting their privileges and their power. Absolutely. Yeah. This brings us to your historian and researcher side. Do you want to talk about that? You know, bring us to the to today's point where you're you're historian and residence for Dublin Central. The thing about the historian and residence is that it gives us the opportunity, and there are only four of us now, <laughs> there were more, um, to promote history. But you know, we're not really constrained in how we approach it. But because we are all conscientious historians, I try not to be polemical. Mm. Um, occasionally, I dare say it slips in. But I do know that, you know, I see myself primarily as a labour historian who has used oral history an awful lot. And that's because, for the most part, working class people didn't actually appear except as statistics. So oral history was an obvious way to reach women in particular, which is what I did my PhD on years ago. Mm. So um, it does feed in. But you have to be very careful not to be polemical. There is a difference between class-based history and history that doesn't allow that there are other viewpoints to your own. You know, that yeah. I, I don't believe it's possible to be completely unbiased. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I remember years ago doing teaching a course on historiography and you know, being accused of being totally biased because we would start off, it was myself and another guy were teaching it, um, and being accused of being biased because we started with Marxist historiography. Now, it was 20th century historiography. How can you leave out Marxist history? But... There were various rather privileged, overprivileged, I would say, uh, Trinity students who thought this wasn't appropriate because Marxism was dead. So, yeah. Actually, but you know, uh, it did lead to some good discussions. Um, but, you know, coming back to the main point was that I had to think very much about my own prejudices and inclinations mm. and I haven't lost them <laughs> but I'm looking you know if I'm looking at evidence about something and say okay am I reading this in a particular way because I'm a socialist who'll always be looking at it from that mm. point of view or is it because this is what it says or you know it shows and if I feel that my perceptions may be skewing how I'm looking at things I hope I've always said that. Mm. You know, yeah. so I did have a situation. It was last year we were doing War of Independence lectures, the historians of residence, and uh, I was giving a talk in a library, and I was waxing about the dangers of Michael Collins. You know, if he had and I got the proverbial expert in the audience who absolutely worshipped Michael Collins and just wanted to engage with me. Now, we had a great discussion afterwards. It was good fun and everything, and we were never going to persuade each other. But at least 
I hadn't tried to suggest that this was the only way to look at it. (laughs) I think that's, honesty, just as, you know, in political presentations or whatever, is incredibly important. Yeah, of course. And that brings us, in a sense, back to, because your chosen area has been oral history. Well, yeah, I primarily have used that over the years. Yeah, because you did your... I did my PhD on that. Yeah. The impact of the Second World War on women in Belfast yeah. and Dublin, oral history. What was the attraction, in a sense, for oral, with regard to oral history, from your perspective? I, I mean, part of this came from laziness initially. <laughs> I'd, I'd be a contemporary historian because the written sources were more likely to be typed. <laughs> it was a lot easier than trying to read obscure <laughs> handwriting. Um, no, seriously. Uh, it, it did come back to that, seeing so many people who only appeared as statistics. And obviously, as a woman who was a trade unionist when I was doing my PhD, mm-hmm. I was very conscious of the fact that so many... Um, I use the phrase ordinary women because that's how they describe. But you know, most of them are extraordinary. And the only way you find out about that is to tell them if they tell their own stories. So story is a very bad word in this regard. It's just it tends to come in because um and I don't want to be too precious and say her story. <laughs> you know, but yeah. his story is how it's been for so many generations. You know, that um, I, I saw a reference the other day to the great Joe Lee. <laughs> he may be great in many ways, but when back in the 80s, when I was starting, you know, it took me a long time to finish it. Mm. Uh, I would have gone through various books from the back, looking at the index to see where women appeared. And I think there were three references to women in Joe Lee's first edition of his survey history. And one of those was Constance Markovich, <laughs> you know, partly your ordinary. <laughs> and you're not a fan, if I, if I recall correctly, you're not a fan. <laughs> I did a lecture about her as part of a series in a few (laughs) months, so I will have to, you know, brain rein in my (laughs) problems. You have to send us a link to that if there's a link to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'll probably be online. But but it is true. The omission in relation to women in Irish in all history is staggering. Yeah, there's been great work done in recent years, but. I was, I'm a member, I've just recently joined the committee of the Irish Labour History Society after having been a member for donkey's years, but I figured that, um, you know, the time has come to start putting my mouth where (laughs) it can annoy the most. (laughs) But the thing is, I I think the ILHS does great work. And uh, I'm a fan of Sayher. So I was thrilled to be asked to do it. But I was asked to think about, um, you know, the women who might get involved. And there are hardly any women in Ireland doing labour history. Right. Oh, my God. It may be for practical reasons, because um, it tends not to get funding. Uh, you know, and if you're early career, you need to get grants to keep mm. you going. Yeah. I've had the luxury and always working at something or other, other, you know, that kept mm. me going. Um, and it probably sounds foolish, but I'm not that pushed. So long as I have a roof over my head and I can yeah. eat food on the table, I'm not worried about huge salaries, which yeah. 
is a luxury. Um, but I think, you know, that that's something I'd love to be able to do something about. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but uh, I, 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 there is that consciousness of a gap. Now, there are some people have done individually really good projects and I don't know what happens to them afterwards. Do they have to go off, you know, if they stay in academia, do they have to teach something else that's, you know, not offensive to college authorities? Though I think most colleges are a bit more open-minded than they used to be. But funding is mm. going to be incredibly tight. Particularly in now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, with the pandemic. So you'll have to do what you're told. And and, and that actually bears upon, like, you've, you've been involved in the Oral History Network of Ireland. In fact, you're part of... One of those. Well, I was one of the founding members, but I left a few years ago because they were moving more towards the academic, which I really wanted it to be about the you know a mix, so that people who are doing projects for the love of history in their own areas and doing fantastic stuff could mix with people who are doing it for academic purposes and careers and all the rest of it, and. It seemed to be losing sight of that, so I pulled out. I mean, I put a fair amount of effort into it for the first few mm-hmm. years. Um, they do good work in training and stuff like that, but um, I'm much better at leaving things, I think. Than <laughs> <laughs> and then, then you were also involved in the twenty, sorry, the Alternative Visions Oral History Group, the, uh, the 1913. Yeah. We, we did well. the 1913. Um, Oh, God, what do we call it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have it here. Yeah, years later. Yeah. Um, we wanted to get it reprinted, but because Sarah died, Sarah Lumberg, the yeah. publisher, we haven't, we haven't got the manuscript. I have a manuscript, but it's a, a PDF and would need to, you know, be, it needs updating because there's been such a lot of research done since we did that. Yeah. And it also needs a lot of correcting. We, we brought it out in quite a rush. In fact, mm. I think it was nearly wet going to the launch. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it could do with being tidied up. Um, but it, it was we, uh, myself and Ida Milne helped me, um, who's had a, a really good career since uh, but we we used my contacts with the trade union movement to get sponsorship and yeah. we trained trade unionists and community activists uh, to do their oral history projects around the legacy because obviously there's nobody left who physically mm. was there in 1913 but what it's meant through families and communities and mm. some interesting stuff came out of it yeah, it's a great volume. A hundred years later, the legacy of the nineteen thirteen lockout, by edited by a good self and Ida Milne with Ida yeah. Milne. Um and there's like it's funny because I was flicking through this today. Right. I hadn't read it in a while, and I I, I I meant to say like one thing that I really like about it is there's an ad for Unite in it. Well, Unite gave us money. <laughs> well, absolutely, <laughs> and they really were but, incredibly generous. but but it's yeah. great to see. It's absolutely great to see. But I mean, the the breadth of the uh, chapters are amazing. You know, um, James Nolan, the lockout martyr, uh, a disciplined soldier, Michael Malin, yeah. and then descendants of the leaders reflect. Uh, it just it's a great thread. Well, Sarah Lamberg and Joe Mooney 
did a great chapter and I am going to totally embarrass Joe about this because because I was editing it I said every chapter is to be a maximum of 8,000 words <laughs> and um, they came back with an 18,000 word chapter <laughs> which I did them a favour by dividing into two but still had to take lumps out I was wondering about that <laughs> it makes sense oh yeah it was the only way I could kind of recognise their enormous amount of work. But, you know, it's part of the discipline of teaching people, which was yeah. a little bit about that, Absolutely. was doing it within your word allowance. And 8,000 is generous. So, to you, so for you, there obviously is a tension in a sense between academy, uh, the academy and then non-academic approaches. It's sort of a fine line you have to thread. Oh, between totally. I mean... Um, I was never a natural academic. <laughs> I worked in Trinity for years because had to. My, my kids were still at home to keep mm. a roof over our heads. But um, I was much more active in the union. And then I went, as I said, I took a career break, went to work with Joe Higgins for a while in the Dáil, which was a huge learning experience. But that wasn't really for me either because I wanted to get on with the PhD, which I'd started. Mm. And uh, I kept getting distracted I mean, I took three months off at one stage at my own expense to do some work on my PhD and ended up between Labour Court and uh, the various, you know, Labour Relations Commission hearings. <laughs> the three months disappeared. Wow. So I decided, I, you know, if I really ever wanted to get this done, I just need to take myself out of the whole situation. So um, very sensibly, I went to Barcelona <laughs> intending to go for a year. Um, and long story short, all my things were robbed and I had to come back. But, you know, it turned out to be a good thing because Alan and I got together as a couple at that yeah. stage. Wow. Um, Oh, wow. And Fantastic. you know the, the the best move I ever made on here. <laughs> but uh, Barcelona's loss, <laughs> your game. It was funny, you know. I I pictured myself living in a cottage by the sea and writing incredibly profound things, but of course, hadn't worked out the practicalities of not having access to the libraries <laughs> or anything else that I needed. I had done all my interviews at that stage, but. Anyway, uh, I have a tendency to act first and think about it later. So that, that was probably, I, I just, I, it, was, it worked out very well. And, yeah. And now with the pandemic, um, how has that impacted? I mean, you're still historian in residence. Um, like, has it had any impact or relatively little impact? Uh, I mean, oh, it's had a huge impact. Right. I, I like meeting people face to face. And, mm. you know, I, I want to, I try to approach my presentations and other things as collaborative. Mm. And I used to run book clubs, history book clubs in three libraries in my area and things like that. And it's very interactive. 
can't do that online at three. You know, we, we'll see now with the uh, Festival of History how well it works. I've done yeah. a few things where I recorded them and uh, one of my colleagues put them up on Facebook for me because I don't use Facebook. I got banned. <laughs> Not through no fault of my own. Uh, somebody hacked into my account and was apparently looking for money from people in my name. I was highly insulted because I would never have done that, <laughs> but anyone thought it was me. Anyway, uh, Facebook shut it down for a while. I gather they've opened it again, but I have yeah. no passwords. So anyway, um, James put them up for me and I've had good responses. And uh, I, you know, it's a new way of doing things. I'm not entirely comfortable with it, but um, I've also learned, you know, that you can minimize yourself on the screen. And just, I like showing lots of pictures to accompany my talks. I think it's very important. Mm. So I spend probably more time researching the images that go with my talks than the actual information. <laughs> but a picture being a thousand words, you know, and all of that. It's so, like a, but I, I really want to get one. back to meeting yeah. people face to face. Yeah. And is there any sign like the libraries are going to accommodate that again anytime soon? Uh, they can't. Just not at all. No. It's just, you know, I mean, some of the libraries are open for, you, you might be aware, you can, mm. some are doing a call and collect, mm. some like my local library, Cabra, uh, you can go in and borrow your books physically, but you, you wash your in very quickly. There's lots of social distancing. It's extremely well run, yeah. but it's not the library experience we're used to. Mm. And, um, so we will be doing things online for the foreseeable future. I'm starting, I hope, at the end of this month now, the Lord Mayor's Certificate in Oral History, mm. which I taught last year. And um, that'll be online for the first term up to Christmas and we'll see how it goes. Right. Okay. But there's a lot of interest from people who actually like to do it online because the times would be better. The drawback to the libraries is they close at 8 o'clock in the evening. Yeah, you know, and at the moment, of course, they're closing a lot earlier anyway. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I've done a bit of teaching online and it's it's actually better than I thought it would be. <laughs> I was very nervous about it. But it's a small group thing. So um, where East Wall, for instance, have had fantastic audiences of 50s and 60s mm. for their Zoom presentations. I don't know if I could cope with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like to be able to see people and hold eye contact with somebody who looks friendly, who usually mm. turn out to be the Michael Collins fan. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of things particularly because I have the Northeast inner city within my area, a lot of the things had to be really face to face. Yeah. You know, we're talking about maybe elderly people who are working through um, community development groups to bring them together, yeah. but don't have access to individual computers or anything to be able to follow things. And while it's okay standing at the top of a room and talking to 20 or 30 people, having just a TV screen with your sitting and you're coming out, I don't think it'll work in the same way at all. Um, so we'll try it. 
Can I just tell you one of my favorite anecdotes from my many years of knocking on doors and walking oh, around? Please do. Um, <laughs> the anti-water charges. Uh, I think it was in Walkinstown because I lived in Rathfarnham for a long time and I was working with Lisa Mara there, it's still the Socialist Party. And we were doing canvassing coming up to, um, you know, trying to get it overturned. And I knocked at a particular door and people came out and I probably had my work clothes on, you know, nice respectable suit or something. So we don't want any of you fucking PDs in here at our door. <laughs> <laughs> I had to be rescued. <laughs> 